I don't know if you've listened to my podcast before, but sometimes there's a bit of explicit language, and this is one of those times. It's Tuesday, July 31st, 2018. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. If you were to ask me, what makes you human? I would say, I don't know, compassion, artistry. But now, it turns out that I can grasp things without crushing them. Because robots apparently find this hard to do, and that's one of the few things we as humans got left. Do you take a weird pride like I do in the stuff that robots can't do just because they can't do it? Elon Musk founded this uh, think thing called OpenAI, and they're working to make robot hands more dexterous. The team has trained a human-like robot hand called the Shadow Dexterous Hand, Oh, that doesn't sound creepy. To manipulate real-world objects like a child's block. But knowing just how much to hold a thing so it doesn't drop, but it also doesn't get crushed, very hard for a robot. Not for me. I could do that. I can grasp a block. I could not crush a flower. Human pride. Yeah, but so could Charles Manson and Piers Morgan. I know, but I can too. I can pick out which pictures have a car and which pictures just have the road. I can do that. I take pride in that now. It's what separates us from the robots. And then if you read about AI and everything AI can do, I was reading in Forbes, they were trying to give me, as a human reader, some silver linings. Here apparently are the jobs we got left. Looking forward to the future, Forbes writes, even if an AI system can take over the bookkeeping for a company, an accountant will still be needed to check for errors. Great. That's my golden years being the backstop to the entity who gets really mad when it does not compute. You think they're going to make a lot of errors? You think we human double checkers are going to do better than the robots? Forbes also lists the other professions that humans will still be able to pursue. Actors, artists, professional athletes, and musicians. You know, I was holding myself back from going into the world of professional athletics, but now that I know that it is a rich human non-robot environment, not only I, but all 330 million other Americans, I would say we should go into acting, artistry, music, and being an athlete. That'll keep us one step ahead of the AI crowd A thinker and writer and a best-selling author and consultant named Stephen Bellingham writes, here's what we need to do because AI is going to be able to do everything else. Creativity. People attach great importance to creativity. For example, they're willing to pay huge amounts of money for celebrated works of art. All right? Make a celebrated work of art. Note to self. The cost of tickets for Cirque du Soleil show that people are also prepared to give a little extra to see something different. And in a Michelin star restaurant, you not only pay for the quality of the food and the service, but also the creativity of the chef. Well, that's good. That's about, I don't know, 400 jobs in the future that we'll be able to do that AI won't. So unless we have a broad circus Montreal acrobatic troupe based economy, I think AI is going to be winning this. Me, personally, you can find me over in the corner holding this child's block, trying not to cry, lording. This one skill over 2XL over there. On the show, I spiel about Mueller investigation disquiet. But first, a primer on how the Supreme Court got political and really a question, was it always thus? Oyez, oyez, a Georgia law professor, Lori Ringhand is here.
Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court has set off a familiar round of familiar complaints, which I think are very valid, that the way we vet these candidates in no way tells us what we need to know about the highest justices in the land. It does seem to me that even during my lifetime, and I am 117 years old, but during my lifetime, our conception of the Supreme Court has changed what it does, but more importantly, what it's supposed to do. So I wanted to talk to Laurie Ringhand, who is a professor of law at the University of Georgia. Unfortunately, we couldn't get her. No, we could. Here she is. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. So I know you are an expert. You're an expert on confirmation hearings, and you're an expert on once people get to the Supreme Court, their voting patterns. And I do want to talk to you about that. But can we also talk about the perception among the jurists, among politicians, and among the public of what the Supreme Court is supposed to do? Is that all right? That's fine. Okay. So when I talk about, you know, in the history of the Supreme Court, I'm probably gliding over the first, you know, 50 years when our concepts of political parties were different. But pick what you think is an important point. It doesn't have to be a turning point. It can be uh, a start of a trend. And tell me how partisan at this point or how political, how much the Supreme Court justices express the will of the politicians who appointed them in the past. And you could pick any point in the past that's illustrative. Sure. Well, if you're going to pick a point where the court and politics started intermingling, I think you'd have to go to perhaps 1801. Because, mm-hmm. of course, 1801 was the date in which the outgoing Adams administration, the Federalists, had held the presidency for the first couple of um, presidential elections. And they just lost to the radical Jefferson. And they were very, very, very upset about this. So one of the last things that President Adams did before he left office um, was pass the so-called Midnight Judges Act. And the Midnight Judges Act, its entire point was to stack the, the court with Federalist judges, with the judges who would be sympathetic to the politics and agenda and constitutional vision of the outgoing president and would stymie that of the incoming president. Mm-hmm. So politics, partisanship, and the court have been intermingled for a very long time. Yes, it does seem to me, though, in those early days, it's it's a bit different, not just on what exactly the issues were, but the fact that the argument now is something like, how could you say that? And the how can you interpret the law? What a leap it is to interpret the law, this standing body of dozens or sometimes hundreds of years of law. Whereas back then, of course, they had to interpret the law in perhaps radically different ways because they were inventing it. And if anyone ever brought up an originalist argument, you know, someone on the Supreme Court could say, yeah, I know, he's right there in the second row. (laughs) We can just ask him what he thought. We don't need a seance, right? When John Adams weighs in on originalist (laughs) intent, he's like, I'm I'm the original. (laughs) You know, I think it's it's helpful when, when thinking about what the court does and how it intersects with politics to distinguish a a political court from a partisan court. A partisan court is a much more serious accusation. And when, when people talk about the court being partisan, what they mean is that the decisions that the justices reach, the sides that they're on, will actually kind of be influenced by who is standing in front of them, who the parties in a given case are. Because partisanship, when you're accusing a court or a judge of being partisan, What you're saying is that they care who wins in the particular case rather than 
being political in the sense that there are these different strands of reasoning and tradition and principles embedded in our Constitution, and judges and justices pretty consistently kind of have have different ways of viewing those strands um, and different things that they prioritize in kind of our long, long litany of constitutional arguments. Well, do you think the complaint that the Supreme Court has gotten more partisan, is that apt? I haven't seen a lot of evidence that the Supreme Court is more partisan, right? Partisan, again, being when the judges, justices would actually kind of, when we suspect they would flip their votes if it was a different partisan alignment of the parties. I don't think we've seen that. I think that's the fear of some folks as as we appoint justices that are very closely aligned with movement politics um, or very closely aligned with with particular political identities. I don't think we've seen that yet, though. Not in this era. Yeah. In interpreting the laws, have we gotten to a place where we're so good at knowing beforehand and sorting the ideologies of the justices that we can get them to not be explicitly partisan but still serve our political ends? It seems to me that you're not going to get a case where the identities of the parties are flipped in, say, a union case. So Janice that just came down, it wasn't going to be the case that somehow conservatives would be for withholding union dues. So you don't have to be partisan, but you can still make a decision with your ideology driving it as opposed to the law driving it. I think it is certainly correct that we know enough about nominees when a person has the status and experience to be a serious contender for a seat on the U.S. Supreme Court. We know an awful lot about that person. We know what their constitutional vision is. We know which um, strands of our constitutional reasoning they think are most important and that they are most likely to prioritize. So when the senators are asking their question at the confirmation hearings, they're rarely getting new information. So in that sense, it is, of course, relatively predictable. There are idiosyncratic justices who surprise us a little bit. Kennedy was certainly idiosyncratic. I'm not sure he was a surprise, and we can talk about that later if you'd like, but he was certainly idiosyncratic. Um, we have justices like Souter who who ended up being more with the liberal side of the court than his supporters certainly expected him to be. Uh, so we do have those variations, but no, for the most part, we know where they're going to land on most cases. And having that near certainty. Is that a more recent innovation? That's an interesting question. I think it has ebbed and flowed along with the intensity, perhaps, of partisan identity. So over our history, we've gone through stages where the parties are more or less tightly defined, ideologically aligned within themselves. And now now they're the most tightly defined. Now they're pretty much as ideologically sorted as they've ever been. Yeah. That's exactly right. We're, we're very ideologically sorted right now. We, you, you mentioned earlier that you thought this process was the most contested it's been in your lifetime. Yes. That might be right, but that says more about kind of your lifetime than the U.S., the arc of U.S. history, right? right? right. Um, because in your lifetime, in my lifetime, what we've seen is the ideological alignment of the parties. You know, in the in the 30s and 40s and 50s and, and may probably even into the 60s and 70s, um, we had essentially four four 
party identities in the United States. You had you had Southern Democrats, then you had National Democrats, you had New England Republicans, and you had the the rest of the Republican Party. That mix of party labels on, in some cases, very very different ideologies on particular issues. What that meant was that that partisanship didn't map as crisply onto different constitutional outcomes as it does when parties are more aligned. And because parties are more aligned right now, these issues map much more directly onto that alignment. Is there a way to talk more honestly about the role a justice should play, say, during nomination or the run-up to it? That would help the public be more honest, which, which I think is a virtue, but also, you know, not hurt the chances of these people who are being appointed. The reason they hue to such fictions as I'm just an umpire is that it works. It's a tricky point. I had high hopes for Justice Kagan because before she became a nominee, she had written a really frank paper about the confirmation process and about how it would actually benefit the country if nominees were a little bit more honest about saying, hey, these are hard questions. They get to the U.S. Supreme Court because Very, very able and skilled judges acting in good faith across the country have disagreed on the correct constitutional answer. That means that we have to make some choices. Our choices are constrained. They're constrained by all the different modes of interpretation. They're constrained by our role as a court rather than a legislative body. They're constrained by the the legal temperament, the idea of law as building in consistent ways on prior decisions to kind of keep the chain story of law kind of flowing smoothly. So our discretion is constrained, but it exists. Um, And as a court, we just have to deal with that to the best of our ability to do so. She, she, she said that, and then she didn't. Uh, so, so that was disappointing at her hearing. And I don't know how to fix that because the, the rhetoric of constitutional determinativism, the idea that there is something out there that is just a absolute single correct answer to complicated constitutional questions that a judge acting in good faith will inevitably find. That's really appealing. And we we don't have a good way to tell the story of what justices really do, which is act in this constrained environment, but still make choices. And then Congress tests and they push back a little bit. And ultimately, it's this give and take. And we kind of muddle our way through. No one wants to hear that. All right. And I guess this is my last question. So for your study, you went back to all the confirmation hearings since when, 39, did you say? 1939, when Felix Frankfurter took open questions under oath before the Senate Judiciary Committee for the first time. What was that like? What was that, tra- oh, that transcript was read? fun. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because it's, it's really revealing. Um, I'll just tell you a little story about Felix Frankfurter. He testified in person because he had not been there. He wasn't in the room the first day of the confirmation hearing. And the senators were just having a go at him. Um, Felix Frankfurter came to the United States when he was about eight years old. He was an immigrant. He did speak English. He was Jewish. This was the period in between the wars, in between the two world wars. We were in kind of the second Red Scare. And the senators were just calling him a communist and saying he couldn't be trusted and he hated America and people of his kind didn't belong on the Supreme Court of the United States. And it was just kind of a bloodbath. Oh um, so the president's people called then Professor Frankfurter and said, you know, you need to come and defend yourself. So he did. He came and he testified and he answered their questions um, fairly patiently. And then finally, he just he, he didn't literally stand up, but you can kind of 
envision him standing up when you're reading the transcript and pounding on the table and saying, I am an American and my allegiance is to the country. He just, he avowed his Americanism. Um, and it was this moment. Uh, and, and that was our first open testimony, uh, open and unrestricted testimony at a confirmation hearing. Wow. That's, that's super duper precedent. <laughs> it's super duper fun. <laughs> yeah. Laurie <laughs> Ringhand is a professor of law at the University of Georgia. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And now the spiel. The Manafort jury was seated today, and with that, the first contended prosecution of the Mueller probe begins. Mueller, remember, already has prosecutions. A plea deal is a prosecution. He got them from Papadopoulos, Vanderswan, Flynn, Yohai, Pinedo, and, as will presumably play a prominent role in the Mueller trial, Rick Gates. Fun fact, Alex Vanderswan, that name has a Scrabble value of 38, whereas the entire phrase, articles of impeachment, only has a Scrabble value of 37. But I have heard a few theories about the Mueller investigation that are disquieting. I will present them to you in order of unlikely to likely, so you can help me share my burden, slash, so I can freak you out a little bit. So Chris Hayes, on his show the other day, advanced one of these theories, that Michael Cohen flipping, which seems to be playing out before our eyes, is just that. It's a play. It's an act. He's used some wrestling jargon to explain. Can I give you a, a very paranoid feeling I keep having and you can talk me out of it? I, I keep feeling like there's some setup that, that this is to use the professional wrestling term kayfabe, which is when sort of fake animus is created between two wrestling characters, that somehow what we're watching is some weird kind of public setup and there's something happening behind the scenes I'm not seeing. Is that is that paranoid? Is that happening? Hmm. Never thought of that. But to answer Chris's question, I don't think it is happening. But back to my original sound. Hmm. The next possibility, medium possibility, is that Mueller really is losing the PR war. Now, he seems not to care about it. But I think we all know that if you were to score the arguments, if you were to concoct a scorecard of all the things that Trump's defenders have been out there saying to discredit the Mueller investigation... And then on the other side would be all the rebuttals or maybe leaked justifications of the Mueller investigation. That scorecard would have tons of marks on one side and no marks on the other side because Mueller doesn't do anything to rebut his attackers and Mueller and his team doesn't do anything to leak justifications of what they're doing. All they do is prosecute. Mueller doesn't go on cable. His words, his arguments are in fact his charging documents, and his plea deals. So I've been thinking about that scorecard. I know it exists, but I think it will never actually get to that. And I know that impeachment is a political act and that the Trump slash Giuliani team may be laying the groundwork for an eventual impeachment defense. But there is a universe in which the argument over the Mueller probe itself starts to affect the Mueller probe. I don't exactly know how it's going to happen. It seems to me that a lot of people who go on cable news trying to make this argument think that it could happen, or maybe they just like being on cable news, but I worry that it will happen. I worry about that a little bit.
But here's the final thing I've been thinking about. I don't know how big a possibility it is because I have no way of accurately assessing the likelihood, but it seems the most plausible of all the things I've been thinking about or hearing, and that's there might not be a Mueller report. Maybe, maybe it's the case that there was never going to be a Mueller report. That all of the prosecutions that we've been seeing, those are the Mueller report. And Mr. Mueller never had any intention to write up a document which one day would be used to bring impeachment charges at the end of this whole thing. Mueller will charge. He will keep charging. It might go up to the president. Probably not that far because it's a questionable legal legal step, but it might. But it also might include people with the last name Trump or people married to people with the last name Trump. But that's it. No written report. Here to tease out this from the Lawfare podcast is Paul Rosenzweig. He's a law professor. He also worked in the George W. Bush Homeland Security Department. And the question, which you'll hear first, is being posed by Ben Wittes. Have we all been snowed into thinking that Mueller is busily writing a report right now because that's what the president's lawyers have been putting out for a while and they've been sort of assiduous about that and so then kind of convinced a lot of people in the press and really what he's doing is he's prosecuting a bunch of people in connection with Russian interference and lying to the investigation and money laundering and all those things or is there... Is that the other side of the Mueller investigation? And, you know, the and one half is actually sitting there busily writing Star Report Part Two. Well, uh, at the risk of saying I told you so, uh, I told you so back in March when the first reports came out that Mueller was writing an obstruction report uh, on one of these emergency podcasts, I expressed serious doubt about that both because I thought it was premature in terms of the timing of the investigation and because I didn't think that Mueller was going to be writing reports like that for public consumption. And I, I still do not. His obligation under the regulations is to report to uh, the uh, attorney general, uh, in this case, the acting attorney general. And I think that's what he's going to do when he's done. Um, I continue to believe um, that Mr. Mueller is playing this game as straight as he knows how within the confines of the regulations and DOJ policy that are given to him. And that means that he's going to continue to bring indictments. And where he doesn't have indictments, he's not going to be giving us, um, you know, uh, reports uh, recommending, you know, uh, impeachment charges against the president or anything like that. I don't, I, I don't think that that's what he sees as his remit. And, um, and so I, I do sort of think that everybody got a little bit snowed, not anybody on this call, of course, uh, on this podcast, but some people got snowed and it's mostly uh, stuff and nonsense and wishful thinking from, you know, uh, back, back at the time it was, it was uh, Ty Cobb and, and, uh, and John Dowd. And now it's, uh, you don't see Emmett Flood saying that publicly anymore. Could be. And maybe Mueller waiting for his plane at Dulles Airport or eating a chicken sandwich at the Cheesecake Factory. We do have photographic proof of the first, and I'm speculating on the second. But maybe this guy's just thinking and has been thinking all along. Why doesn't everyone think what I'm doing is enough? What shoe are they waiting to drop? We're putting the chairman of the winning presidential campaign on trial, and I think that he's going to be going to jail for the rest of his life. We are tightening the screws on Trump's inner circle. Maybe he is thinking, these indictments are my report. Do you really need me to connect the dots? It's like you're sitting at a diner and we've given the 
children a placemat, and the placemat is connect the dots, but anyone can see it's a kangaroo. It's clearly a kangaroo. Sure, it's dots, but look at the dots. It's kangaroo. There's the tail. There's the ears. What other pointillist animal has a pouch? That's what Mueller's thinking. And this has been three theories of the Mueller investigation ending in rhetorical questions about a kangaroo. And that's it for today's show. The Gist was produced by Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. They think it's an opossum. It's a kangaroo, guys. Steve Lichtai is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. His one real arm and one robot arm. And depending on the mood of the business meeting, he can shake hands politely or alarmingly aggressively. The Gist. If Cohen is playing kayfabe, does that make Jim Acosta Mean Gene Okerlund? Oomperu, deperu, deperu. And thanks for listening.